Hello, and welcome to the Energy Observatory podcast. I'm your host, Sebastian Gonzato, and in this podcast, I'll be interviewing researchers from KU Leuven's Energy Systems Integration and Modeling Group and the Vleric Energy Institute to talk about their research and the policy discussions surrounding them. We're academics, so we hate being wrong. If you think we did get something wrong, then please send an email to sebastian.gonzato at kluven.be and we'll include your comment on an errata that will accompany each episode on our website. I have two guests with me today for the ESIM podcast. So the first one is Martin Ovara. So Martin, you got a PhD at K. Leuven. Then you did a postdoc at Yale for two years. Then another postdoc at University of Ghent. And now you are an assistant professor. Uh, welcome to the ESIM podcast, Martin. How are you doing? Thank you, Sebastian. Uh, I'm doing great. Great to be here. Uh, great to be back in Leuven, where I did my, my PhD in economics. That's correct. Great, happy to have you here. And we also have Kenneth Brunix. So Kenneth Brunix is, uh, did his PhD uh, also at KU Leuven in the ESIM group, and he's now a postdoc at ESIM. Uh, hello, Kenneth. Morning, Sebastian. Great to be here. Great to have you both on uh, the podcast. So we're going to talk about the European Emissions Trading Scheme, or the ETS, and more specifically about the Market Stability Reserve. But before we do that... I have designated you, Martin, as a victim to explain carbon pricing in all of 60 seconds. Go. As an economist, I would say uh, carbon pricing is all about internalizing the externality of carbon. So as you all know, carbon leads to global warming. And as a result, you want to decrease carbon emissions. And uh, carbon price leads to uh, a polluter pace uh, principle which means that if you emit carbon, you have to pay. And what the, the price of that um, emission is uh, depends on, for example, uh, the social cost of carbon. It can be set by a government at price. It can be set by some kind of cap and trade system. But in the end, you as a polluter have to pay. And then the final effect of this payment is that you start to take actions to decrease your carbon emissions up to the point where you are not decreasing them anymore because abating or decreasing carbon emissions is more costly than paying the, the, the carbon price itself. And that's, in, in econo-speak, um, it leads to optimal abatement actions of carbon price. And that's why all economists or most economists uh, like carbon pricing. It's theoretically efficient. And you mentioned their cap and trade, but you can also have carbon taxes. So maybe Kenneth, could you quickly explain the difference between those two? The main difference is that either you fix your carbon budget and you say, okay, let's impose a cap and trade system in which you have a fixed amount of emissions that you allow yourself and let the market set the price. In the other, other alternative, in a carbon tax, you're saying, we don't know how much we're going to emit, but we're going to fix the price that we put on the carbon uh, emissions. So those would be the two main differences, or the, what would be the main difference, I would say, between the two principles. But in the end, as Martin explained, what matters is that you put a price on, uh, on the emissions. 
in order to provide the market with an incentive to reduce those emissions. So in Europe, we have the emissions trading scheme. So the name implies that we have a cap and trade system, which does seem to be the most popular carbon pricing scheme even worldwide. And so let's just jump straight into, we want to talk about the market stability reserve, right? So what is the market stability reserve and how did we get here? Maybe that's that's the more interesting part right now. Um, well, to answer that question, you have to look back a little bit at the history of, of ETS. And if we start somewhere in 2012, uh, in the third phase of ETS, we had very low carbon prices for a long period of time, up until 2018. And some people attributed those very low prices to the fact that we had quite a bit of a surplus in the system. Um, this surplus refers to the fact that we put in more allowances, so more rights to emit a ton of carbon, than we actually have seen emissions. Um, the amount of that surplus, or the surplus amounts to, is more or less the equivalent of one year uh, in terms of emissions at some point. And people said, okay, that can't be right. Um, this must be the cause for those low prices that we are observing now. People tend to disagree on this, or researchers tend to disagree on this. But nevertheless, uh, this motivated the Commission or the European institutes to install a system in which you have the market stability reserve monitoring that surplus in the system. And if the surplus uh, exceeds a certain threshold, it's going to lower the supply of allowances. And this is supposed to provide a signal for scarcity, a signal of scarcity for these emission allowances driving up prices. They never mentioned this in regulation, but implicitly, of course, this is uh, one of the objectives of the market stability reserve. Um, It's going to provide a signal of of scarcity driving up prices for these emission allowances. You could say the European Commission is trying to have its cake and eat it. So the trading scheme is a uh, quantity-based mechanism. So they set the cap. And then they notice that the prices are not what they would expect them to be. So they implement, I mean, this is obviously very simplistic, but would that be a fair uh, judgment? In a sense, yes. But I would say it's only yes because of a new rule, the invalidation rule that was um, adopted in 2018 and that will be in effect uh, in 2023. And that invalidation rule essentially cancels, invalidates a part of the the surplus of allowances that are um, taken off the market by that market stability reserve. And because of that invalidation rule, I think it's correct to say that it uh, wants to have its cake and eat it as well, because now you're in some kind of hybrid, hybrid system in between a tax and a cap and trade. So you have tax, price-based, you, you, you fix the price and you have a cap and trade that fixes quantity. And now you're neither fixing the price nor the quantity. And you're right, by invalidating the quantity emitted can only go down. You're not creating any new allowances. It's really um, asymmetric in a sense. That it's a ratchet that is decreasing the cap of allowances. So in 2018, the market stability reserve, specifically this invalidation, was announced. What impact did that have on prices? Well, if we look at market prices, um, we see that 
sort of leading up to the official adoption of the new rules for the market stability reserve. And right after that, that prices almost quadrupled. We had prices uh, around six, seven, eight euros a ton uh, at the end of, uh, or in the middle of 2017, I should say. And then after people understood the full ramifications of these new rules that were implemented in 2018, we saw prices on average over 2019 of, of uh, 25 euros per ton CO2. Um, so that's quite an impressive change. And in our research, we have shown that these are really the market fundamentals that are at play. It's the combination of this invalidation rule that was imposed on the market stability reserve and the fact that they also, at the same time, um, increase the rate at which the emissions cap is decreasing as of 2021. Um, and the combination of those two elements in regulation, they really drive up the price uh, or drove up the price to that 25 euros per ton, signaling an increase in ambition of, of the European Union in uh, bringing down uh, carbon emissions. And uh, in 2020, we published a paper that was already in the pipeline for, for two years, where we uh, made an estimation of the effect of these two different um, contributing factors. And so what we found is that the decrease of the linear, re linear reduction factors, so the decrease of the supply of allowances, was contributing 40% uh, more or less to the increase in the price. And so the invalidation rule back then had an effect of around 60% in total. So it was a combination of those two that was quadrupling, uh, quadrupling the price. So one of the most surprising aspects of your research is the self-reinforcing effect of the market stability reserve. Could you explain that to us, Kenneth? That's a very challenging thing to explain, but I'll give it a go anyway. So in a cap-and-trade system, you leave the timing of abatement actions up to the market participants. This means that you can bank allowances. You can buy an allowance today to use it somewhere far into the future. And with the market stability reserves invalidation rule, the invalidation volume, so the number of allowances that we take out of the system, depends on the number of banked allowances. If the number of banked allowances today goes up, invalidation volumes go up, so the, caps, the cap becomes more stringent. Now, what does this have to do with this self-reinforcing effect? Well, if we have policies, or if we have projections of costs, or if we have shocks in the system that make it more difficult somewhere far into the future to meet the cap, make it more expensive, this provides an incentive to bank more allowances today, because those effects somewhere far into the future translate to prices today through this banking mechanism. If this happens, so we have something far into the future that increases the cost, drives up prices today, providing an incentive to bank more allowances. As mentioned, the banked volume or the, the volume of banked allowances goes up, hence invalidation volumes go up. And this is our self-reinforcing effect. In summary, what this means is that if the cost of emissions or the cost of abating emissions in the future is higher, the cap actually goes down, which is, which is opposite to anything that you want as a policymaker. And to add to that, this is a, a more general mechanism that some people have uh, called the new green paradox. And the green paradox is a 
pretty famous concept in economics, meaning that um, if you announce today actions about the future, the effect today might be exactly opposite to what you expect to happen in the future. I think that's a general concept, and we see a very similar uh, green paradox here in EU ETS, in the self-reinforcing effect. Martin, could you give us an example of this green paradox at play in the ETS? A good example is, for example, a government that today announces a phase-out of coal plants far away in the future, so in 10 or 20 years. And if you are a market participant in EU ETS, you realize that in 10 or 20 years from now, the demand for emission allowances will be lower because you substitute coal plants by gas plants or renewables that need less carbon allowances. And because the demand for allowances in the future will be lower, the future price of allowances also will be lower. And as a result, this translates because allowances are bankable in ETS, leads to a lower price of allowances today. And the effect of this lower price today is that abatement of carbon today is also lower. And as a result of this, this is my last step, the um, invalidation of allowances will also be lower today than it was before you announced a future phase out of coal. So it's a very convoluted process. I think we can agree, but I think we managed to get there. So does that mean that every policy has a green paradox? No, but it does mean that every policy that affects the emission allowance demand under ETS, that it changes cumulative emissions under EU ETS in Europe. However, the effect, the, the exact magnitude of this effect is fundamentally uncertain. So we cannot say with confidence or with, with, with confidence whether a policy will exhibit a green paradox or whether it will change emissions in the directions that in the direction that we expect it to. This uh, argument or EU ETS as an argument sometimes pops up in the discussion, for example, on the nuclear phase out in Belgium. And there the only thing that we can say is that we have no clue in what direction the European or the European emissions will change as a consequence of this phase-out policy in, in Belgium. I guess we can agree that this is a situation that is undesirable because you now have no longer control over your emissions uh, cap, which is the whole point of a cap-and-trade system. Well, that's not really the, the main issue here, um, in the sense that we're only adjusting the cap downwards. There's no situation possible in which that the market stability reserve, not in the way that it's proposed in, or that it's currently functioning, or the way that it's being uh, proposed to function under the Fit for 55 proposal of the European Commission, there's no situation possible in which you would adjust the cap upwards. We're only making the cap more stringent through the market stability reserve. The problem is, however, that this self-reinforcing effect is there, which is sort of contrary to what you would expect from a cost-effective policy. And, uh, and that's sort of uh, two sides of the same story, that you now have overlapping policies that could induce new green paradox. Um, think about the example that Martin, Martin provided on the coal phase-out. You announce a coal phase-out 
and this leads to more carbon emissions. You can't explain that to people anymore. Um, Let alone us. We have spent quite a while talking about this. <laughs> That's quite I right. I should add. That's quite right indeed. Um, but not all hope is lost, I would say, um, in the sense that there are ways of fixing this system. ETS remains a fantastic tool to put a price on carbon and make polluters pay for their emissions. But it's the market stability reserve that is the heart of the issue here. And you could try and fix that by moving to, instead of a quantity-based system as we know it today, and as it is currently being proposed by the Commission, um, you could move to a price-based system where you monitor prices, the price of emission allowance today or on average over the last year or so, and that you decide based on that whether or not you adjust the cap downwards or not. And this would, um, this would remove this, uh, this green paradox issue and I would say this is not only a theoretical idea, the price-based um, gap uh, or price-based adjustment of the allowance supply exists in California. So California cap and trade is also a hybrid system between a cap and a tax. And the change of the supply of allowances depends on the price. One important thing to mention is that in the way the California cap-and-trade system is designed, the cap can adjust upwards and downwards, but this is not a prerequisite of a price-based cap-and-trade. So we can design the European um, cap-and-trade system such that the cap only goes downwards like in the current quantity-based system. And... Perhaps you could comment on uh, the feasibility of changing this at the European level or perhaps even the, the willingness. What kind of discussions are people having? Are they having discussions about this? Uh, well, that fits in, in perhaps the discussions on the Fit for 55 proposal. So Fit for 55 also focused specifically on, on EU ETS. There is a proposal to increase the linear reduction factor, so the rate at which the a uh, cap goes down to extend the scope to maritime transport, but also to adjust the functioning of the market stability reserve to some extent. However, the fundamentals, um, the fact that it's a quantity-based system, that is not being addressed by the European Commission. However, this is an opportunity uh, in the sense that it is currently being discussed in the European Parliament and among the member states, and we could and we should take that opportunity to uh, adjust the fundamental principle of the market stability reserve and indeed to move to a price-based system rather than a quantity-based system. One of the reasons that a price-based instrument in Europe is politically unpopular is that choosing or deciding on the exact price color, so the price floor and the price ceiling, is... Um, pretty hard, I guess, in Europe, because all 27 member states have to decide on this, while a quantity-based instrument as it is, prices are the output of the pro uh, process. So they only have to decide on abstract measures such as input rates, uh, intake rates, outflow, um, and all of this uh, is, is easier um, in Europe. Have we seen um, 
an impact on prices in the ETS due to the 50, fit for 55? Yes, indeed, we have. Um, we already spoke about prices up uh, or in 2018, 2019, where, when we were at around 25 euros per ton of CO2. Um, most recently, we are in uh, the low 90s, so up upwards of 90 euros per ton of CO2. And this is really the market, according to our research, this is really the market at play, the market anticipating on these more stringent rules that are being proposed in the Fit for 55, a combination of uh, the increase in the rate at which the cap decreases and the, uh, the cancellation or the invalidation mechanism, I should say, of the market stability reserve. So the self-reinforcement that we talked about. Yes, indeed. Uh, because surprisingly enough, or interestingly enough, if you would apply one of the two measures, the increase in the linear reduction factor or the invalidation of the market stability reserve, uh, you will never be able to explain the high prices that we see today. So they really reinforce one another. Uh, and it's really the self-reinforcing effect that is at play to, uh, to drive up the prices to the numbers that we see today. And given these high prices, could you briefly comment on the actual prices or the, the increasing costs that consumers will face? Well, let's say the, the price of an emission allowance is, is 100 euros per ton. Then um, give and take in Belgium, for example, the um, marginal intensity of, of, of electricity is, let's say, 400 kilograms per uh, megawatt hour, which means that for every megawatt hour that you as a consumer consume, you pay around 40 uh, euros. So uh, an average household will then pay between 100 and 150 uh, euros um, on its yearly electricity bill because of this high uh, carbon price. And that's maybe you, we can put that relative to the very high uh, natural gas prices that we've been facing because there have been people who say we need to relax the ETS system, I, I believe, in order to deal with the high prices. But would it be fair to say that that would be the wrong place to start? Right now, the price of natural gas in Europe is, let's say, 100 euros per megawatt hour. And because you need two megawatts of natural gas to generate one megawatt of electricity, that means that going from, let's say, zero to 100 euros per megawatt hour of natural gas, you pay an additional 200 euros off um, for this electricity. For an, an average household, that means six to 800 euros in addition on your electricity bill. So the effect of... Uh, increases in the natural gas price is approximately four times as large than increases in the price of carbon. So this is the ESIM podcast. ESIM is a uh, research group. So could you comment on exactly how your research calibration started and how what the process was like? Yes. The MSR and EUTS caught our attention at the end of 2017 when the new invalidation rule was adopted and being an economist collaborating with an, an engineer we first looked into the uh, we started with a simulation model of let's see in a model the effect of these new rules on 
prices, on quantities, on investment in solar and wind, all those kind of interesting things. And we ended up with an estimation of a lot of things. For example, the price should be 30 under these new rules. And in the end, more or less, um, the price was, was 30 under these rules. So we were happy that we got it correct. But it got us thinking, why should it be 30 and not 10? And what affects um, this price? And then we ended up going towards studying the mechanisms behind this, not just ending up with a number, but the mechanisms behind it. And then in our in a later paper, it's uh, just published in Nature Communications, we focus much more on the mechanism, like the self-reinforcing effect or the green paradox or the concept of waterbed leakage, something we haven't discussed. And much less on the numbers itself. Maybe I can add something to that. So I can only second that. Um, it was indeed an interesting process to go through from a very detailed, technology-rich simulation kind of approach where you're very much focused on the numbers and the sensitivities like we as engineers typically do to something more focused on the underlying drivers and fundamentals. Um, that doesn't mean that numbers don't matter because also in that second effort, we, we hit the price right. So we got the price right again uh, and we, we showed that it was really market fundamentals at play in, um, or that the market is anticipating the adoption of the Fit for 55 proposal and that the, the prices that we see today are really the market fundamentals uh, at play. So we studied this for four years and finally the conclusion is we are fundamentally uncertain about certain aspects of this policy. But we're pretty certain about the fact that it is uncertain, which gives us some peace of mind, at least that we did something useful in the last four years. I think that's a great academic way to end this episode. Thank you so much, Kenneth. Thank you so much, Martin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sebastian. It was great being here. Thanks a lot.